Resentment, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 2. What you are about to hear is the second part of a public lecture given by Gil Bailey at the City Hall in Brisbane, Australia in July of 2003. All of this comes back to an empathy for victim. And who saw that? Nietzsche, the very person who, who wrote most passionately about the rise of resentment. He blamed it on the Christians. He said, these Christians are causing this resentment to rise. And Nietzsche's totally mad, dangerous, gives rise to the Third Reich, and I mean, it's the worst in a way, but he was brilliant. He saw that there was a relationship between Christianity and the rise of resentment. And so he wanted to get rid of Christianity. He didn't understand. Or maybe he did and he didn't want to. The reason there was a rise of resentment is because Christianity had awakened a moral empathy for victims. Because what's at the center of Christian revelation is the world's most famous innocent victim. What the passion story tells you is what all the stories all the, all the myths that recount the events at the sacrificial altars where those animals are killed or people are killed or whatever, all the stories that tell you about that tell you that the crowd is right and the victim is wrong. And the Christian story tells you the exact opposite. It says the crowd, though unanimous, is wrong. And the victim, though unanimously convicted by the community, is innocent. It's a shattering revelation in terms of the mechanism on which conventional culture has always depended. And it deprives conventional culture of the ability to periodically purge itself of its resentment at the expense of its scapegoats and enemies. So Nietzsche saw that and threw a glass darkly and wanted to get rid of Christianity because it was crippling the kind of robust uh, conventional culture that he longed to reinstate. So, in light of that, I want to tell you three stories that have to do with the genealogy of resentment. We're talking about resentment and not even violence anymore. And the reason for that is we're trying to talk about the challenges, religious challenges of the 21st century. And that means we have the privilege of being fire inspectors rather than firefighters. Uh, firefighters have to go put the fire out. They don't have the luxury of thinking about how it started or they just have to get it put out, you know what I mean? And it's a pretty messy affair, putting it out. But if you have the luxury of being a fire inspector, you get to go around trying to figure out what's going to catch fire next time. You, see, you, you, you look around and see what's dry and combustible, and what's dry and combustible is resentment. So that's what we're doing in the sense of the, the genealogy of resentment, just to notice what is happening in our world. Now, I hope I won't forget to say this. Nietzsche was right. A lot of resentment, not all of it, of course, because there's a huge upwelling of resentment in the non-Christian world. A huge upwelling of resentment. And there are plenty of people there who are willing to give it real sacrality. Real sacrality. The kind of sacrality you can give it in the West is very thin. We would like to say, well, our violence is sacred, but if anybody in the West ever said the Christian God wants us to kill those people, they would be, immediately be thrown out of office. 
You could try to imply it, maybe. But you can't say it out loud. You see what I mean? So it's a universal problem, but there are some places that have a little more immunity than others. It doesn't mean you become less violent, by the way. It's immensely complicated. The whole thing is immensely complicated. You know, there's a Jewish midrash which says, if everybody thinks he's guilty, he must be innocent. If everybody thinks he's guilty, he must be innocent. And that's because the Jews are so practical. They understand that, that, that we're incredibly ornery, you know? And uh, if, you, if you have total unanimity, it's not likely that you arrived at it by any kind of rational process. Something fishy is going on. See. It's some kind of social contagion. So if everybody thinks he's guilty, he must be innocent. So that's pretty powerful. So I just want to tell you three stories just to get a feel for the development of resentment. The first story is the story of Hamlet. As the biblical revelation of the truth of the victim begins to break in on us, the sacrificial reflex, which is to find somebody to sacrifice in order to get rid of the resentment and generate social harmony, the sacrificial appetite is very powerful in us. It's in our viscera. You know, I think it's what St. Paul meant by the flesh. Most of the time, he's not talking about sexuality. I had to remind people, you know, St. Paul didn't have his conversion on the way to a brothel. So this thing's very powerful in us. And it comes up, and we grab any religious or political justification that lends some kind of legitimacy to it so we can go on with it. And as the biblical revelation breaks in on the world and reveals the innocence of the victim and awakens an empathy, the, the sacrificial mechanism has to, has to uh, gravitate toward those few forms of itself that can still pass muster, at least for a short while. And one of them that's very resistant, in a way, is vengeance, sacred vengeance. And Hamlet is responding to the appeal of sacred vengeance. The most important thing about violence is that it's reciprocal. That is to say, it's very difficult to turn the other cheek. The most difficult thing is not to reciprocate. I'm all in favor of the discourse of nonviolence, but I think the discourse of non-reciprocity is a more practical one because it's really a question about reciprocity. How do you break the reciprocal process? Once it's set in motion, and it tends to escalate and get out of hand and so on. Well, vengeance is right at the heart of that. In other words, somebody does that, you come back and you add a little extra just as a lesson. You see, and then they come back and you get the Montagues and the Capulets and the Hatfields and the McCoys and the God knows what it is. It just keeps going. The Jews and the Palestinians and the Middle East. And here's Hamlet. His father has been king and his father has been killed by his brother and went ahead and married his father's wife, his mother. And he learns this from the ghost of his father. And the ghost of his father says to him, Vengeance. Vengeance. You have a sacred obligation to kill that man. And Hamlet is ready to go. He wants to go. He's all fired up, you see. He says, I will, I will, and he can't. And he can't even understand why he can't. He wants to kill him so much, and he can't. Shakespeare knows why. 
but Hamlet doesn't know why. Hamlet never knows why, but Shakespeare knows why. Hamlet says, how all occasions do inform against me and spur my dull revenge. See, something has dulled his revenge. He's paralyzed. He doesn't know why. I do not know why yet I live to say this things to do, since I have cause and will and strength and means to do it. Examples gross as earth exhort me. He's a puzzle to himself. Why can't I kill that guy? And then he starts cursing him. Bloody, bawdy villain, remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless villain. Oh, vengeance. And then he says, why, what an ass am I. This is most brave that I, the son of a dear father, murdered, prompted to my revenge by heaven and hell, must like a whore unpack my heart with words. I'll talk. He can't do it. His father is the voice of the pagan imperative. The voice of the pagan imperative is, you have a sacred obligation to kill. And he's fired by this, but he can't do it. Something we need to talk about is mimesis, which means imitation, and uh, it's a long story, but, you, but Shakespeare knew it backwards and forwards. And what Shakespeare knows is that what Hamlet needs is a little inspiration in the form of an example that might whet his appetite for vengeance. So, you know, Hamlet is living before video games. If he were living at the time of a video game, he could simply go get a video game and plug it in and watch somebody kill somebody, and that would be enough. But he doesn't have video games, so he knows these friends who are theatrical types, and they blow through town at exactly the right moment, and he knows a scene in a play. And the scene in the play is the killing of the old king of Troy, Priam, by Pyrrhus, the son of Achilles, at the end of the Trojan War. And uh, the young Pyrrhus slaughters the old king Priam. And that's the scene he wants. Because it's, it's, it's the archetype of what he needs to do. It's the archetype of his own deed. Plus, Pyrrhus paused for a while. So he says, oh, I want to get these guys to perform that because this is my condition. So it's narrated as they're performing it. For lo, his sword which was declining on the milky head of Reverend Priam seemed in the air to stick... So, as a painted tyrant, Pyrrhus stood, and like a neutral to his will and matter, did nothing. So he's just like Hamlet. See? He's frozen there. But, as we often see against some storm, the silence in the heavens, the rack stands still, the bold wind speechless, and the orb below as hush as death, anon the dreadful thunder doth rend the region. So, after Pyrrhus' pause, Aroused vengeance sets him new a work, and never did Cyclops' hammers fall on Mars' armor forged for proof return with less remorse than Pyrrhus' bleeding sword now falls on Priam. That's just what he needs. So he's ready, and he leaves, and he still can't do it. He has everything there. You see, he's got all the energy, he's got the archetype, everything, and he can't do it. Why can't he do it? Shakespeare is so crafty. Those of you who remember the play, where does he have a chance to do it? In the chapel. Why did Shakespeare put that in the chapel? 
he stumbles upon Claudius in the chapel. Claudius is confessing his sin. And Hamlet says, I don't want to kill him now because if I kill him now, he'll go straight to heaven. I want him to go straight to hell. You see what I mean? But that's not really the issue. The issue is that Shakespeare has situated the opportunity to carry out the pagan imperative in a Christian setting. A Christian setting complicates the pagan imperative. And you think I'm making that up, but I'll prove to you that I'm not. Because at the beginning, at the end of the play, Shakespeare shows his hand. Marcellus comes off the heath having just seen this terrifying specter of the old king who's the voice of the pagan imperative. And so when he starts this soliloquy, he says the word it. And I want you to know that that pronoun refers to old Hamlet who's demanding sacred violence. So let's say the word it refers to the voice of the pagan imperative. Marcellus says, it faded on the crowing of the cock. Now those of you who haven't read the New Testament lately may need to be reminded. The crowing of the cock, which made Peter realize that he had betrayed Christ and gone along with the crowd like everybody else, is a decisive moment. It's the moment when the nickel drops and you realize that you too are a crucifier, that you too have just gone along with a crowd. You see what I mean? So it's an immensely powerful moment in the center of the New Testament. So referring to the pagan imperative, Marcellus says, it faded on the crowing of the cock. Now, I want to go on with that soliloquy, but just, let me just ask you this. What are the chances that William Shakespeare wrote that line not aware of its Christian implications? Zero. Zero. So the pagan imperative fades on the crowing of the cock and then listen to Marcellus's speech and you find out it's Christmas time. It faded on the crowing of the cock. Some say that ever against that season comes wherein our Savior's birth is celebrated. The bird of dawning singeth all night long. And then they say, No spirit dare stir abroad. The nights are wholesome. No planet strikes. No fairy takes, nor witch hath power to charm. So hallowed and so gracious is the time. Now this is a marvelous speech for understanding history because he mentions the cock crowing, and then he says, some say that ever against that season comes wherein our Savior's birth is celebrated, the bird of dawning singeth all night long. Now this is a major problem if what you're trying to do is carry out the sacred violence of vengeance. Because if you could just get the bird of dawning to sing in the morning, you could kill the son of a bitch and wake up with a moral hangover. You see what I mean? But when the bird of dawning singeth all night long, you've got a problem. That's precisely Hamlet's problem. There's already, in the 16th century, too much Christianity mixed in there. Even for something as powerful as the sacred violence of vengeance, your father has been killed and you know who did it. You see, that's tremendous appeal to sacred violence.
but by the time of the 16th century, the bird of dawning is singing way early in the process, you see, and it's beginning to complicate the situation. Now you think, you may still think I'm making this up, one last proof that I'm not. There's a play within a play, and in the play within the play, Laertes has exactly the same motive that Hamlet has. Polonius, the old windbag, is behind the curtains, and Hamlet runs him through, and he falls dead, and that's Laertes' father. And Laertes, his father has been killed, he knows who did it. Exactly the same thing as Hamlet. It's as though Shakespeare wants to be coy, but he gives us all the clues. So Claudius, the old king, asks Laertes at the end of, near the end of the play, he calls Laertes in, and he toys with him like Iago or something. He says, Laertes, did you love your father? Oh, I love my father. Did you really love your father, Laertes? I love my father. Did you really love your father, Laertes, or is it just all talk? He said, oh, I don't know. <laughs> he works him up into a pitch. And then he says, what would you do to avenge your father's death? And Laertes says, I would cut his throat in the church. You see that? He would override the Christian imperative in the interest of the pagan imperative. So it's a perfect setup to show you what's, what the tensions that are going on here. And most people read Hamlet and they get into this terrible this existential thing. And all of that's part of it. You, you want to know why there's an existential crisis? It's because of this stuff. But we haven't, we haven't dealt with our own anthropology enough to understand the roots of our spiritual confusion. Okay, the next one, jumping three and a half centuries or more, Dostoevsky's Underground Man. The Notes from Underground, strange, strange novel about the strangest character in the world. The novel, little novelette, begins with these words. It's all a monologue, you know. It's all an interior monologue. I am a sick man. I am a spiteful man. Spite here would be a synonym for resentment. I'm a sick man. I'm a spiteful man. I'm an unpleasant man. I think my liver is diseased. However, I refuse to treat it out of spite. I am perfectly well aware that I cannot get even with the doctors by not consulting them. But still, if I don't treat it, it's out of spite. And now, Dostoevsky is brilliant and funny but it's an amazing revelation, you see. He says, I refuse to treat my own diseased liver out of spite. We have a phrase, maybe you have it too, you know, cut your, own, cut your nose off to spite your face. I am perfectly well aware that I cannot get even with the doctors by not consulting them. Look at the phrase, get even. What is he talking about? Get even with the doctors. For what? They've done nothing. He has this enormous impulse to get even, and he has nothing to get even for. This is the rebel without a cause. This is precisely the rebel without a cause. This is this condition of looking for something that will give some kind of justification for venting that resentment that you have. This poor man is a sack of resentment, and he cannot find anything that will give, give him any kind of moral justification for unleashing it. 
by the way, speaking of getting even, you go back to that Augustine thing. Out of a game and a jest came an avid desire to do injury and, and an appetite to inflict loss on someone else without any motive of personal gain and with no pleasure in settling a score. See, that's like the underground man. He talks about getting even. It's completely out of context. What does it mean to get even? He wants to get even with everybody. For what? You see? And one of the things that happens with resentment as it begins to break down is that it diffuses. It has no focus. So it becomes, instead of, it has no rationale, has no logic, no intelligible logic, and therefore it becomes systemic. It's a kind of contempt for everything. It doesn't cohere in any way. And it begins to have very serious psychological consequences. It begins to eat away at the very integrity of the person's identity. I mean, it's really a very serious question, by the way, which is very widespread in our world today at one level. You know, again, Nietzsche's a total madman, but he read this and he said, Dostoevsky is the only psychologist. Forget all the rest of them. And this was about the time when we invented psychology. That's another thing you have to notice is the historicity of psychology. We invented it at a certain moment in history because we had to. You see what I mean? Things were happening. The instability at the psychological level was manifesting itself in situations that were serious enough and widespread enough we had to invent a discipline to deal with it. But Nietzsche was right when he said Dostoevsky is the one that's got his finger on it. Uh, the underground man says, how many times it happened to me? Well, say, for example, I just felt offended, just offended for no reason. And on purpose I felt offended. And I'd know very well that I felt offended for no reason, that it was an affectation. But you can drive yourself so far that in the end, really, you do indeed get offended. Somehow all my life I've had the urge to pull such stunts so that in the end I could no longer control myself. That is to say, to be offended on purpose and to feel offended for no reason and then to have it become an affectation. Now, you know, there's some for whom we have to have immense compassion. There are some people in the youth culture who have developed this persona of being completely offended about everything. And you have Dostoevsky's analysis of it. It's very powerful. So the source of modern, or should we say now, postmodern nihilism. The underground man, last quote from the underground man, my anger, in consequence of some damned laws of consciousness, he can't understand what's happening to him in the same way that Hamlet could not understand what was happening to him. You see, Hamlet says, why can't I do it? And the underground man says, something happens and this something that happens, he says, it's happening because of the damned laws of consciousness. We know better, just like we knew better when we were reading Hamlet. Listen to what he said. My anger, as a result of the damned laws of consciousness, is subject to chemical decomposition. As you look, its object vanishes into thin air. Its reasons evaporate, the offender is nowhere to be found. The affront ceases to be an offense and becomes something like a toothache for which no one is to blame. 
and consequently there remains only the same outcome, that is, to give the wall a terrible beating. Now, Dostoevsky, like Flannery O'Connor, I don't know if any of you know Flannery O'Connor, Flannery O'Connor wrote these stories that were like gargoyles, you know. I mean, they were just so weird. And people asked her, why do you write these stories? They're so weird. And she said, well, because you have to get people's attention. And the stories, she said, are all about the average person today, mostly about the intellectuals today. They're all about, you know, sort of Georgia hayseeds, but they're really about New York intellectuals. But they're these gargoyle stories, which are so weird, you think, how could that have any pertinence to me? You see what I mean? Dostoevsky's the same way. This is the strangest character in the world. But if the shoe fits, wear it. There's something here that's a foot in our world. A chemical decomposition and suddenly this gathered resentment dissolves, doesn't go away, continues to build. He can't vent it because he can't sort of bring it to a head and vent it in a certain direction. He starts to and then all of the justifications and then he, he realizes he sees too much, he sees too much in the situation and therefore he's stuck with all that resentment. The letter to the Hebrews says, if after we have been given knowledge of the truth, the word truth in the New Testament is aletheia, it means to stop forgetting. It means to recover from having eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. After we have been given knowledge of the truth, the author of the Hebrews says, should we deliberately commit any sins, there is no longer any sacrifice for them. There's no longer any sacrifice for them. You can't purge them at the expense of your scapegoats. There will then be left only the dread prospect of judgment and the raging fire that is to burn rebels. I don't think we should read that in, ter in terms of some metaphysical torture after life. I think it has, I mean, you can read it however you want to read it, but I read it in terms of the raging fire that is to burn rebels by the way, the word rebels here is hupenantios, which means hyper-antagonist. Rebel without a cause. It really means rebel without a cause. Hyper-antagonist is a Greek New Testament synonym for resentment. You see what I mean? Generic, constitutional antagonism without a focus. And if, he says, we sin now, we have no sacrifice we cannot get rid of it in that old way and it'll back up and produce underground men in all of our hearts there will be left only the dread prospect of judgment and the raging fire that is to burn rebel I have a little Nietzschean interlude and then a story Frederick Nietzsche talked about the will to power but for all of his talk about the will to power he understood something about the will that's unbelievably profound, or at least the will that he was interested in. And he says this in The Gay Science, quote, The thoughtless man thinks that the will is the only thing that operates, that willing is something simple, manifestly given, underived, and comprehensible in itself. He is convinced that when he does anything, for example, when he delivers a blow, interesting image for Nietzsche, he thinks that when he does anything, for example, when he hits somebody, that it is he who strikes, and he has struck because he willed to strike, of the mechanism 
of that and of the manifold subtle operations that must be performed in order that the blow may result and likewise the incapacity of the will in itself to affect even the smallest part of these operations, he knows nothing. Volition is in fact such a cleverly practiced mechanical process that it almost escapes the observing eye. The metaphor Nietzsche uses to illustrate his point illustrates it almost too well. It helps ensure that what almost escapes the observing eye will not altogether escape it. It is the will to strike a blow with which Nietzsche is concerned and with the mechanism that gives rise to that will. So he's, he's an heir to Hamlet and the underground man here. You see, this is part of the anthropology of our age in religious terms. It is the will to strike a blow with which Nietzsche is concerned and with the mechanism that gives rise to that will. Make no mistake, the mechanism Nietzsche is talking about is not the nervous system. The manifold subtle operations of which he speaks are social operations, which is to say mimetic ones, like imitating the player who's killing Priam. Will, Nietzsche wrote, can of course operate only on will and not on matter. Will can only operate on will. Desire can only operate on desire. So he knows that it has to pick up another's will. In other words, there has to be some act of will that inspires my imitation of that act of will. Precisely this mad genius of Nietzsche. He knew how powerful the mimetic element in human existence is and how it tended to generate the myths of liberation in those who were falling under its spell. Everything is in the highest degree involuntary, he wrote, but takes place as in a tempest of a feeling of freedom, of absoluteness, of power, of divinity. He's talking about getting whipped up into a mob. He's literally giving you a philosophical rendition of what it means to be caught into a mob. He saw in a glass darkly that the will of the superman, the ubermensch, is just as mimetically engendered as the depraved hoots and hollers of the mob or the otherwise dulled revenge of Hamlet. Henri de Lubac says, Nietzsche longed to be swept up into the implacable process and become its priest and prophet. Okay. Now, Nietzsche was this mad genius, hunkered over a little writing table with thick writing glasses, taking pills all day to wake himself up and sleep. But then fumes from that cauldron came up and the Nazis inhaled them deeply. So my last story about the genealogy of resentment and the anthropology of the religious crisis of the 21st century comes from another New York Times book review of biography of Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi leader. This is a review of a book by a man named Ruth and the review says Goebbels had a knack for the colorful phrase and a passionate devotion to Hitler. The biography charts the rise of a morose, self-pitying young man who called himself a poor cripple. He himself begins as a kind of underground man. As a penniless student and an unemployed PhD, Goebbels lost his Roman Catholic faith, threw himself into love affairs, and adored Nietzsche's Thus Spake Zarathustra and Dostoevsky's Possessed. 
Un unfortunately, he learned not nearly as much as he should have from the latter and more than he should have from the former. Anyway, it says, in 1924, this lethargic and misanthropic young man, remember Dostoevsky's underground man, discovered the National Socialist Movement. Imagine the underground man finding an ideology that provides him with political and religious sources of justification that allow him to take all that resentment that's eating him alive and focus it sufficiently so that he can expel it from himself. Do you see the kind of dynamic I'm trying to suggest here? By 1924, this lethargic and misanthropic young man discovered the National Socialist Movement which transformed him into a venomous anti-Semite and a passionately loyal follower of Hitler. His experience of Hitler was a religious experience. I want to explore what that means, that his experience of Hitler was a religious experience. Quoting from the review that's also quoting from the biography, the encounter with Hitler was an epiphany that transformed Goebbels' life. He found Hitler shaken and frail in 1944 after, at the end of everything but characterized by extraordinary goodness, quote-unquote. I've never seen such inner warmth. One simply has to love him. He's the greatest historical genius of our time. He's writing that. He, he wrote an autobiographical novel in which he describes his meeting with Hitler, which is nothing short of a religious experience. Why would he describe it as a religious experience? Why did the most ancient forms of human culture deify their sacrificial victims? There is something that when you, when you can fall into this madness and this immense release of energy that has such cathartic effects both individually and culturally, it is experienced religiously. And you get that from, from this. With the German army in retreat, Goebbels had Berlin painted with the slogan, Hatred our duty, revenge our virtue. And he wrote in his diaries, quote, I want to be able to hate. Oh, I can hate, and I don't want to forget how. Oh, how wonderful it is to be able to hate. Now, if you get sufficiently toxic with resentment, and hate is the default position for getting rid of it, and something comes along that provides a sort of organizing principle for the transformation of that resentment into hate and expelling it out, it will be very difficult to resist it. So the level of resentment in an individual and in a social setting is a measure of our vulnerability to the appeal of sacred violence in whatever form it is. Because the more the resentment builds up, the more something that offers us an opportunity to vent it with moral immunity is welcomed, and especially if it has some kind of religious sanction. So this is the challenge of the 21st century. The gospel has deconstructed the myths that justify sacred violence, but there's another operation that has to happen. And the other operation has to happen is that that resentment is 
just another word for sin, but it's probably better to remind you that it's also another word for unforgiveness. So people are choking on unforgiveness in a way. In lots of places in the world, all of us are being very nice here, and we're probably doing reasonably okay. Our societies, pockets are doing okay, and pockets aren't, and so on. There's a lot of problems. There's a lot of problems. I told you the two stories in Sydney, you know, these are little symptoms of the situation. And these are terrible examples that have happened to us, and there's a nihilism that comes out the other end. If you don't find some venting for it, resentment starts to, let me quote to you from Michel Duveau, who studied this, he says, revenge prefers to do anything rather than ceasing revenge. This imposes a necessary consequence. Better to take revenge on myself than to cease my revenge. Suicide thus reveals itself, says Duvaux, to be the final figuration of the logic of evil. I will remind you that Hitler committed suicide, Goebbels and his wife killed their six children and committed suicide. I want to be able to hate, he said. He wanted to get it out. He's carrying this poison, you see. And if he can't get it out, it's going to consume him, and it did consume him. Now, these are very deep and dark and radical sort of things that I'm saying. But this is the anthropology of the religious problems that lie ahead when we have a world where the myths that justify the sacred violence, which allows us to vent all this stuff and purge ourselves of resentment, are breaking down under the impact of the biblical revelation of the innocent victim. And we're not dealing with that resentment. Now, I say in this book over here that the gospel does two things. It undermines the myths of sacred violence. It deprives the world of sacred violence gradually. Gradually, gradually, gradually. And it teaches us how to live without it. You see what I mean? If we don't have it anymore, like the, like the author of the letter to Hebrews said, once you no longer have sacrifice, if you still sin and accumulate all those toxins, psychologically and socially, it'll eat you alive. It'll eat you alive. And you'll see, first you'll see little symptoms edginess, domestic violence, road rage, students being violent against teachers, teenage parties where people are getting their heads bashed, all that stuff. So what is all that? That's the stuff that the old sacrificial system used to take care of. And when Jesus rammed a stick in the spokes of it, he said, you think I've come to bring peace. I'm taking away the very thing you used to use to create peace, the peace that the world understands. That's the little gizmo you, you've always used to make peace. So what I'm doing is setting in motion something that's going to have you at each other's throats unless, unless you have a conversion of heart, unless you start to do the kind of things that it takes to relieve that pressure. What's that mean? It means forgiving, turning the other cheek, reaching out to those who've been offended and have had their dignity insulted. 
do something about that, help resolve these tensions, this tremendous buildup of resentment in our world. It's now up to us. If you have an antibiotic on a shelf, you can just go merrily along and if anything happens, you can pop a pill. You know, that's the way the old sacrificial system used to work. We don't have it anymore. So we have to live according to the Sermon on the Mount. It's a different kind of world. Now, what's happening in our world is something else. There's another little thing, and I have to end with this. T.S. Eliot saw it. The very tradition that has been doing this to us, making us aware of victims and therefore deconstructing our sacred myths, is being marginalized. And I'm going to talk about this tomorrow in another context, but T.S. Eliot describes it in his poem, The Wasteland, in a sort of elusive way, but I, want to, I have a reason for quoting this text, and you'll see in a minute. This is what he says is happening to Europe in 1925. This is his prophecy. Madame Sosostra's famous clairvoyant had a bad cold, nevertheless is known to be the wisest woman in Europe with a wicked pack of cards. Madame Sosostra's is Eliot's stand-in for any kind of silly fashion, intellectual fashion, religious fashion, new age, you name it, anything. And he, Eliot knows what's been said so often that when when people stop, be, stop believing in Christianity, they believe anything. Christianity, as Henri Dudelbach said, is the twilight of the gods. It's the belief in Christianity that makes us immune to that superstitious nonsense. And suddenly, when we marginalize it, here comes Madame Sosostras. And she just represents whatever fluffy little fashion might be rolling through the society at any given moment. She's known as the wisest woman in Europe with a wicked pack of cards. It's the tarot card, see? Here, said she, is your card, the drowned Phoenician sailor. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Look, there's all kinds of Shakespearean other references here, too. Here is Belladonna, the lady of the rocks, the lady of situations. Here's the man with three staves, and here's the wheel, and here's the one-eyed merchant. And this card, which is blank, is something he carries on his back, which I am forbidden to see. I do not find the hanged man. Fear death by water. I see crowds of people walking round in a ring. In some ways it's just so fascinating we don't really notice what's happening. What's happening is, she says, I do not find the hanged man. Fear death by water. It's a reference to baptism. I do not find the hanged man. I see crowds of people walking round in a ring. He's talking about the marginalization of Christianity in the West so that one doesn't see the hanged man. One begins to fear death by water and one sees ominously people walking round in a ring. That's really ominous, you see. A crowd gathering. I do not find the hanged man. Fear death by water. I see crowds of people walking around in a ring. Now, the more the hanged man recedes, the more the crowds circle. Understandably dissatisfied with the boy's for-no-reason explanation, the Times reporter tells us that the adults of Patterson, New Jersey, began casting about for explanations 
and came up with the paucity of after-school activity. Let the paucity of after-school activity serve as a metaphor for all the well-meaning moral obfuscations we advance in our increasingly desperate effort to accommodate to a crisis whose real depth and dimensions we are afraid to reckon. Let it serve as well as an emblem of the moral and intellectual price we pay for acquiescing in the pillaging of our tradition that has taken place on our watch and under our noses. As the mob fell mercilessly on the poor man, participants and onlookers seeing with eyes that for a moment could not see and hearing with ears that were unable to hear, were repeating a scene that has been repeated over and over since the foundation of the world. For it is the scene which coincides with the founding of human culture itself. The path on which these boys stumbled is the path most traveled, the path down which humans always descend when the weight of sin and confusion make them vulnerable to its sinister appeal. An appeal that can be resisted only if the truth about the victim's innocence and common humanity is not lost. The unwillingness of the boys in this homicidal mob to use the word murder in speaking of what they had done is a moral symptom of the failure to find the hanged man. There is one sentence in the dark and troubling New York Times story about the killing of the homeless man by the teenage mob which seemed to have been taken right out of one of Flannery O'Connor's dark, troubling, and astonishingly prophetic short stories. The Times journalist retraces the path of the teenage mob as it wound its way around the neighborhood adjacent to the high school just before the murder took place. One of the sentences in that chronicle reads as follows, quote, The milling crowd gained and lost participants as it moved down Walnut Street past the House of Fire Christian Church with a for sale sign on its shuttered window, end quote. For revelatory significance, Flannery O'Connor could not have improved on that sentence. Here, a crowd mills around in a ring, eventually closing in on its victim. The inability to see his pitiable humanity, a perfect analog for Madame Sosostris' inability to find the hangman. So what's happening here? Now you and I might not agree with the theology of whatever was once taught at the House of Fire Christian Church that now has for sale signs on its shuttered window, but it was the last outpost in this little neighborhood. It was the last indication about the hanged man. And shortly after it disappears, the crowds move about in a ring. Now, the gospel doesn't belong to us, but there is something terribly coincidental about the rise of all this resentment and the inability that we Christians have to formulate and articulate the relevance of what's revealed there to our culture and to our world. But I don't want to leave you on a terribly pessimistic note. I want to go back to the Java story. There's a little piece of hope in that Java story, believe it or not. Hope in the sense that it's another little just glimpse of the other thing that's happening. The other thing that's happening is that the bird of dawning singeth all night long. And we may, you and I may not be doing our job in helping relieve the terrible weight of unforgiveness that's weighing down on people and causing all kinds of spiritual and psychological and social relational confusions. 
but that's the task that we have. The gospel, nevertheless, is pressing on to ensure that everywhere it touches, the bird of dawning singeth all night long, and these things are broken down. So I want to go back to the Java story. Remember the man who said, the only way to get rid of the witches is to kill them. This is the man who had gone on the, had killed one of the witches. And then he said, before going on the witch hunt, the man interviewed, said he and his colleagues prepared themselves psychologically. Now, you have to be alert to this. If somebody tells you in rural Java that they've had to prepare themselves psychologically, you can be sure that Western thinking has introduced itself. That is such a Western cliche. You see what I mean? And it's not a question of West, of course. It's a question of the biblical revelation breaking in. But I'm just saying, as soon as somebody says, well, you have to prepare yourself psychologically, I can promise you that if you go back 500 years, witch hunters did not have to prepare themselves psychologically. It was a piece of cake. You see what I mean? Something's happening. But he says now, before you go out on a witch hunt, you kind of have to prepare yourself psychologically. That's a very good sign. And then he says, it's hard work killing a witch. It didn't used to be, I promise you. Like I said, it used to be very easy. It's hard work killing a witch. But you just have to keep telling yourself. Remember Joseph Goebbels? I can hate. I want to hate. I must not stop me. Same kind of crazed recognition. He says, it's hard work killing a witch, but you just have to keep telling yourself over and over again that they are evil and that you're helping to save innocent people from their curses and spells. You have to keep telling yourself that over and over, you see. It's a little piece of the promise you see what I mean? We may not be keeping up with the gospel in helping one another dissipate our unforgiveness, but the gospel is working meanwhile, breaking in on these things. And this poor man is about to have Hamlet's experience. You see what I mean? It's hard work, but you just have to keep telling yourself. But remember the underground man says, the damned laws of consciousness. It's not that, of course. But he says, suddenly the thing disappears, the person you're blaming it on, it's not that. He realized that doesn't work. And then you're just left with the same outcome, which is to beat the wall. Well, I'll end with the very wonderful words of a very saintly man who's a dear friend of mine, Ryman Schwager, and he says this, and I, I, I suppose this will be my way of summing up this thing of resentment is really sin, is really unforgiveness, is really the toxin that will either be dissolved by each of us doing it in our own little way in the world, or it'll erupt and cause all kinds of terrible things in the 21st century. Raymond Schwager says, sins, especially serious and conscious ones, begin in the depths of the heart 
and they often have a long prehistory in which many people bear different amounts of responsibility and in which it often depends on accidental circumstances as to whether things get as far as an outward punishable deed and who commits it. For example, if you think back on these teenage parties where I was just found today in Sydney, I just read the story, where there's a sharp uptick in teenage violence, and you realize things are happening there. There's a shared, there's a pool of resentment that's kind of washing back and forth and accidental things and, you know, a comment here, somebody brushes you there, you know, who knows what it is. It could be anything, sort of washes around. And then this person does something and this person goes to the hospital. And it's absolutely important that we all have to take responsibility for our own acts. So we say, the guy who hit him with the chair is the guy responsible. And it's absolutely true. But the resentment that cashed out in the chair going over this guy's head, everybody had some responsibility for that. That's what Ryman is saying here. It's not a question of taking away someone's personal responsibility, but this stuff courses through. And sometimes it manifests itself in the very person who's had the least immunity to it. And very often that's a person in some ways whose own life has been already wounded and traumatized and so on. So we have to see that we have responsibilities other than just behaving ourselves. We have a communal responsibility to help resolve some of those things. Well, you've been very patient. I went on and on, but we do have a few minutes. So I'd love to hear your thoughts and if you have any questions. When Jesus said, resist not evil, it's not because he was a pacifist. Because he understood that moral outrage is the devil's raw material. So it takes a different approach to just go out and get the ones who are the bad people it may be completely justified at one level, but spiritually, it plays right into the same thing. The idea that I am part of the problem is the central Christian idea. It's when I hear the cock crow, and I don't have to hear it if I'm pointing my finger. The word Satan means the accuser. And Jesus says, can Satan cast out Satan? A healthy dose of humility is a, would be a great way to start, as far as I'm concerned. I lived in a small town for many years, and one of the things you learn in a small town, I had been in San Francisco, see. I went to a small town, and I found out it's very odd in a small town, because you can, these people over there, you say, wow, yeah, the developer, you know, or whatever it is you're fighting, and next week, you're sitting next to them, and some social event, you find out they're very nice people, you know? And it's a, it's a great cure for that. So what, what we have to preserve is relationship. And you can have a relationship where you have radically different points of view. 
And those relationships can be deeper almost than ones where you agree with everything. So this is an art in a way, kind of like a, a new art we have to learn. A, a ritual is always a reenactment of something prior to it. So you can't invent a ritual. Lots of people have tried. It doesn't work. <laughs> so you have to wake up one day and realize it's there almost. Because if you try to invent it, it's too contrived and so on. But there are things that may well produce replications of themselves. A certain degree of ritualizing is always healthy. We need to ritualize our lives. I mean, when we say hello to each other or open the door or shake hands or something, these are little rituals which help in life. This concludes Resentment. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.